Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. It's hard to believe we have been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. Oh, you're telling me. Producing this show week after week is so much fun, but it does require a ton of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great discussions. We are highlighting adaptations from Season 9 over at our Originals page, thenextreel.com slash originals. That's the site where listeners can purchase the source material for all of our adapted film discussions. We had a big Robin Hood series this season, looking at nine different versions on screen. Many were likely adapted from Howard Pyle's The Merry Adventures of Robin Hood, including Douglas Fairbanks in Robin Hood, The Adventures of Robin Hood, Disney's Robin Hood, Robin Hood Prince of Thieves, and the 1991 Robin Hood, and Ridley Scott's Robin Hood. Robin and Marion was specifically based on the ballad, The Jest of Robin Hood. And we really don't have too much to say about Robin and the Seven Hoods. We talked Dead Ringers for our David Cronenberg series adapted from Barry Wood and Jack Geisland's novel, Twins. Have you checked out that show? You know, I haven't, but I've heard great things. Two comedies from our Steve Martin series were adaptations, Pennies from Heaven from the BBC series, and The Lonely Guy from the book by Bruce J. Friedman. The Best Little Whorehouse in Texas was part of our Colin Higgins series, adapted from the Broadway musical. Spike Lee brought us Black Klansman from Ron Stallworth's memoir. And we looked at a trio of John Le Carey adaptations, The Spy Who Came In From the Cold, The Little Drummer Girl, and Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. Plus, all three movies in our Agnieszka Holland series were based on books, Europa Europa, In Darkness, and Spore. La Caja Fall and its remake, The Birdcage, both came from Jean Poiré's original play. We also talked about Arsenic and Old Lace and Charade in our Gary Grant series. All of these were based on other material, and it is all available on our Originals page, thenextreel.com slash originals. Every book purchased supports the podcast. Get the full list of adaptations we've covered and start your next read today at thenextreel.com slash originals.
I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Pete Wright. Oh, welcome to the next reel. When the movie ends, <laughs> our conversation begins. Dead Ringers is over, so it's time to separate the twins. Ladies and gentlemen, Dr. Beverly Mantle. By every scientific measure, they are absolutely the same. They share everything. You haven't had any experience until I've had it too. Bev, you've got to try the movie star. She's unbelievable. Doctor, you've cured me. You mean to say there's two of them? They're twins, dear. I think we should drop her, Bev. You drop her. love if it does this to you, Kenneth. Doctor, I think there's something wrong with you. Patients are getting strange. What are they? For working on mutant women. From David Cronenberg, who in The Fly made the fantastic real. Get him out of here! Radical technology was required. Something radical is definitely required. Now, David Cronenberg makes reality the ultimate fantasy. Dead Ringers. Separation can be a, a terrifying thing. All right, Andy, we have we've done it. This is the end of our uh, of this year's series, the 2019 series of our uh, survey of the early films of David Cronenberg, and we have arrived at Dead Ringers. This is the one that I've been looking forward to since we decided to actually do a series on David Cronenberg. Uh, And yeah, well, I mean, it was it's always been the highest uh, rated on my list. There was a lot of uncertainty in these early movies. And I have to say that now that we've watched this, done this survey of of early Cronenberg films, I am uh, truly impressed at uh at the movies that i had never seen i have a new eye on the movies that i had seen and i still uh really enjoyed dead ringers i can say i enjoyed it even more uh the result of our survey of his other films i think i i think we've we've got a lot of fun things to talk about would you have this hit you yeah this has been uh, a long time favorite of his uh works of uh, as far as i'm concerned i've always enjoyed this film i think there's such an interesting story here i think jeremy irons is brilliant um it's you know the fly has just always been my favorite of cronenberg's films and i probably before we looked at dead zone would have put that second and then mm-hmm. dead ringers third but now you know dead ringers is definitely up there mm-hmm. um but um yeah i i really just enjoy this story i enjoy the complexities of these characters and the way that the whole thing unfolds i think it's it's an interesting way to look at kind of the schizophrenic nature of being a person and just kind of the way that these two twins um are two different people but kind of the same person and this world of you know the actor and how she also is a person who's playing other people and i don't know i just found it to be such an interesting study of of people and i feel like this is really a point where we are going to start seeing a much more kind of uh moving forward much more psychological look at kind of the horror elements in humans with david cronenberg's films I think so too. I in watching an, an interview with him back uh, when Q was still on the air in uh, Q 
Canada. Uh, there was, there's a fascinating conversation. He was he was tasked uh, at at sort of describing himself, and um, you know this was some some years ago. And they said, you know, if you when you look up David Cronenberg on the internet, uh, Wikipedia or whatever, you end up seeing words like shock. You know, a, a shock filmmaker. Um, uh, shock horror, and uh, I, I have to, I, I have to say I personally disagree with that, but um, that I, I see why that is sort of bandied about regarding his work. He went on to say, "How do you Cronenberg conceive of your own movies? How do you think about your own movies?" And he said, "When I'm making a movie, I never think of any of my prior movies. It's like I've never made them; like they just don't exist." And uh, I, I think that's fascinating particularly with with an eye on this movie, because it is at once, I, I don't know that I would call it horrific, but it is a suspenseful tale. But it's not it's not a horror movie. It is, I think, remembered more as a horror movie. And I think it applies a lot of the lessons of threat and fear that he has displayed in these earlier movies, but does it in a way that makes an incredibly compelling character drama uh, about the lives of these two men that just sort of fall apart. Um, and as you say, it's a, a, a really cerebral movie using the tropes of horror to tell the story more effectively. And, and I found myself really moved by that this time around. Um, and, and as you know, I saw it the first time with my mother. It was much <laughs> different this time. You watched it with your daughter. <laughs> well played, Beth. I just, well I never played. know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep. Yeah. It, the, the nature of this story is just such a, such an interesting one. And I think the shock horror, if you can kind of put that in quotation marks, as you think of Cronenberg's work, I think in this case, it's, it's only the 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 shock of taking a job that exists in the world gynecologists and making them characters like the principal characters of a film and having a story about them because by nature it's just one of those occupations that makes people a little more uncomfortable particularly men for some reason uh they don't like thinking about the idea of gynecology and what they do and and using that as kind of an entry point to these characters and particularly as the story goes because the psychology gets dark particularly as as Bev kind of starts breaking down and designing you know the the what does he call them the the gynecological instruments for working on mutant women right and we get this this uh, kind of reshaping of that of that job and what they do and just the horror of it and it becomes a really kind of a horrifying entry point for a film that really isn't it's no different than any other you know doctor or surgical person doing a procedure but it just is it's not the one that you normally talk about i guess and so to Mm -hmm. that end it is the shock value, and that's where Cronenberg is kind of pulling that, even though it shouldn't be. And that's why I think it's such a fascinating way to kind of use that as an entry point to the film. Yeah, I do too. And and so that's that's kind of the gambit, right? That's the setup that it's it's uh, uh, when you 
when you discover that the film's premise, the foundation of the film is based on something that as a culture, nobody wants to talk about. We want to pretend it doesn't exist. That's already a, a threatening premise. And now we're going to set it up where the our, our protagonists are twins and we're going to display some things about twinning that we also don't understand and is counter to our expectations of twin movies, right? This is not a uh, Freaky Friday-esque, you can't tell them apart, they're identical people completely. This is not a good versus evil twin story. This is a story of uh, people who are deeply uh, who are successful but deeply complex and uh, dealing with complex, mature human issues, uh, stress, anxiety, rejection, dysphoria. Like these are all things that are at play that drive, you know, that drive them to do what they do uh, with and around each other. And uh, that also is horrifying, right? That that sort of secondary premise. It's another thing we don't understand. And uh, we're going to go ahead and push that. It's another thing that Cronenberg said that his face favorite, uh, one of his favorite things is to look at these successful people, right? People who otherwise should be at the center, the beating heart of society, and their success and their obsession pushes them to the fringes. And that's exactly what Beverly and Elliot are doing here, right? They're such successful doctors and scientists, and they're doing things that are that that push them ultimately to the fringes of understanding and uh, and tears them apart. And I think this so this film in in that light becomes kind of a textbook application of Cronenberg. Eye. And the idea of identity and having your own identity and sharing an identity and in the nature of twins, I think that's such a fascinating element to explore. And uh, especially in this film, as you have these two twins who are separate beings, and Jeremy Irons, Jeremy Irons came up with a way to play them as two wholly unique individuals. But then they purposefully also act like the same person in relationships, as we learn early on in the film. And then as we as the film kind of continues on, it starts kind of blurring that line as far as who's who and and who's the one with the problem. And, and he's got this problem. So now I need to get this problem so I can help him get out of this problem. And it's 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 such an interesting way to kind of look at the nature of what it means to be an individual. And uh, it's, I, it's, it's a fascinating study. Even more so when you look at that line in the, deep in the third act when he says, uh, you know, I, we just have to get in sync. We just have to get in sync. Uh, then everything will be okay. And to me, that sort of reflexively, I look back at the entire pattern of the film, and uh, that's that's really what it is, right? They fell out of sync because of this third party sort of wrench in the in the cog. And um, you know, this actress comes in and ruins the rhythm of their synchrony. And uh, I think that is, um, th that ends up being a, a beautifully sort of mechanical uh, application of, of human emotion, which is exactly what these guys are, a mechanical application of human emotion um, and, and uh, you know, pieces torn apart. Um, and, but what's so and, interesting about that is like, did they, did she, did she break what they had or did she fix a kind of a problem that they had that they just weren't able to adapt to? Right. Because like, is, well, I don't mean to spoil it for those, but they end up dead. Well, <laughs> I think they're broken. <laughs> they, they, yeah, they can't fix it. But, but yeah. I mean, but the way that you kind of portrayed that is that she's the one who breaks this 
that she kind of destroys this this rhythm that they have. Yes, but it's yeah. a it's a broken rhythm. Like they should not have had that rhythm where they're they're having sex with her, both pretending to be the same person. Like oh. they they are they've created this faulty rhythm of playing one person, which is an artifice because they are two people. But it's because of this identical twin situation that they are in and using to their advantage that they're doing this and she kind of pulls the kind of pulls the string that tears that apart and maybe it needed to be broken but then the question is you know did they did they ever have what they needed in order to live as anything but one person Exactly. And that's what I mean by their synchrony. Right. And and when I say break here, there's no judge sort of morality uh, judgment in, in play. It's it's just the the mechan- the signal is broken between them as a result of her entering the movie. And um, it is a very strange thing that they have going on here where it is a non uh, it, it's a it's not a secret that they pretend to be one like the the fact that they have a relationship where they are known to be twins they're known to be very famous twins they win awards and they talk about one another as if they're and then occasionally they decide to play uh one person right just sometimes they do uh is a very strange affect of their uh of of this particular sort of twinning. If I were a twin, if you and I were twins, we would do this all the time. We would totally commit to it, though, and one of us would live in a closet when the other was in the world. We can talk about it later, but I'm just saying <laughs> you don't actually get to have it both ways, and they had it both ways, and it and it fell apart as a result of, of her entering entering the picture. So maybe the planets were on their way to aligning that these things would have fallen apart eventually anyway and she was just a, a catalyst for that. Um it it that it's one of the things that I find really jarring about the movie about it is is that there is it's such an open secret that they do this. Right. And uh, an interesting one that that Claire hadn't heard because she seems to yeah. be in circles of people who are aware of these, you know, the famous twins, you know, the Mantle brothers. Yeah. And did that throw you at all? Like when she goes and sits down and talks to the other woman, I I don't remember her relationship. Was she an agent or a, somebody? And, and she says, oh, yes, you're palling around with the Mantle boys. And she says, uh, you know, let's. So what's that again? And that she hadn't heard and also that she was talking so cavalierly about the fact that uh claire's uh was going to this you know for this experimental gynecological fertility clinic how did that get out to the rest of the world but it never got back to claire that the guys were twins I don't understand. Yeah. I don't understand how that is. Besides, they were open in their clinic. Like they were, it wasn't like there was a secret. One of them would practice while the other one was in in the. That they were open about it. Weren't both their names on the door? Like, didn't they? I don't know. Yeah, there were questions. I don't know. A, yeah, quibbles. The, there are there are some story points in that element that I think may uh, make it a little weaker because. Uh, I mean, it was a little unclear. It felt like one brother did more of the research, the other did more of the exams. But it sounded like they both still were part of the clinic, and they both still worked there. So, so yeah, that that could have used a little more clearing up. I I think so too, and especially clear at the award ceremony when it is clearly public that that both these brothers exist, and they both have tuxedos. So it's not like one. (laughs) (laughs) They have to share the 
share the wardrobe, uh, I, I just think that that starts to fall fall apart a little bit. Yeah. Where we get a real opportunity to play with the horror stuff, though, uh, you know, you got to dabble a little bit in it. And that is actually, I think it, it all relates to the twinning uh, psychopathy, right? We have a couple of dream sequences, um, and they're suitably uh, gross. The one dream sequence in particular, um, I know that they shot another one that they didn't end up using. Right. But uh, the the one is, yeah, I mean, it's it really is a sense of this conjoined twin idea that here we have these two brothers and 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 this woman who's coming between them literally because in the dream, you know, they are joined at the stomach and she starts chewing it apart. <laughs> Very Cronenbergian. And it makes sense that that's what's going to happen. Um, in kind of in his uh, kind of panic, because here he is in, in his psyche, realizing the manifestation of what's going on here, that that they have this one identity and here she is coming between them. Yeah. When she puts her mouth on it. Oh, that was tough. Uh, there's a wonderful conversation with Gordon Smith, who was responsible for these uh, these sequences. And I say these sequences, you mentioned the one that they didn't use is the um, there's a, a sequence where one of the twins emerges emaciated out of the gut of of the other. And uh, there are some nice stills that you can find uh, about that sequence. This one in particular of the umbilical uh, pairing is uh, apparently Smith had originally designed a, a set of girdles uh, so they could really, it was originally written as a fight, so they would actually fight one another, um, but uh, uh, he, he couldn't do that if they were naked. They would have to be wearing pajamas and have the umbilical coming out of the, the clothes, obscured. So the girdle was obscured by by oh. some sort of garment um and uh Cronenberg uh, said no 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 I can't if we they have to be naked so that dramatically changes the scene suddenly it's no longer um a fight it's no longer a struggle it becomes a real a much more of a sensitive kind of um uh, exploration of their experience together and so the 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 kind of the horror comes at the very last kind of second, and uh, as she kind of pulls out some sort of a, I don't know, hose with her teeth. It's like an umbilical. Yeah, that's it's, really what it seemed like. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it's the it is, and so it's. Um, uh, I, I think that's an interesting take again on the horror, turning that into a, a much more of a human exploration of these two, their separation anxiety uh, and and deep dread and fear, and her role in breaking them apart. Right? It makes it it makes the the metaphorical sort of literal and then metaphorical again, and I think that's a, that's a really powerful um, sequence. And that's a, a good. Uh, perhaps lead into just some of the effects and the way that they handled some of this sort of thing. Because obviously that fits in very nicely with a lot of the effects that Cronenberg's done and we have seen in most of the films that we've discussed so far in this series where he's got kind of the body horror elements in this particular case. It's that kind of warped umbilical that is connecting these two, uh, these two men. Um, but it's also worth talking about like just the the world of twinning effects for film period and what this film did and how it kind of moved to advance some of what had been done before. And, I, you know, a lot of what Cronenberg does 
including this particular scene, is just find ways to shoot with doubles where, you know, instead of having uh, the two kind of split screen guys here, we've got the back of a head because it's kind of a tricky position to kind of, you know, have it work with uh, two Jeremy Irons in the frame connected by this thing. Um, and then, and I think in this film, it's it's kind of at that balancing point where I think, there are points where it actually works pretty well, and there are points, and I will say, one of my problems with this dream sequence is the way that his the brother's head is so awkwardly turned, just so we don't <laughs> see him. <laughs> it's a little, it's a little yeah. uh, off-putting, and I, I am always distracted by it. And it happens a number of times throughout the film where I'm like, okay, that time worked, this time was distracting. But then there are, I think, 11 shots where they put together some beautifully stitched uh, uh, motion control camera shots where they actually have Jeremy Irons on screen opposite himself. And uh, I know we're kind of at this point now, kind of post-social network and moon, where we're so used to seeing kind of this digital cloning where it's just, it's flawless. But this was this point where they kind of took what had been done in the early films like Freaky Friday, where they would do this kind of, uh, you know, film on one half of the of the film and with the other half covered up and then reverse it and do the same thing. But on the other side of the film so that you could have Haley Mills playing opposite herself. This is taking that to the next step where they're actually doing it with motion control cameras and you have Jeremy Irons walking down a hallway and, and then he has to do it again and matching timing and, and everything with some beautifully complex shots, uh, including one that's a pan from Jeremy Irons in the background to a, you know, Jeremy Irons in the foreground with a rack focus in between. It's, there's some really complex stuff going on here that I think is, is stellar. It really is. Uh, it's just, beautiful work and you're so right we take that uh, you know uh for granted now that we can just pop a new face on somebody right in the era of sort of deep fakes like you don't even think about replacing a face anymore it's just a, a thing that you do um but you know i remember just how blown away i was i believed that they were twins the first time i saw this i wasn't a big jeremy irons guy until i saw this movie and um and I thought, oh, how funny, he has a twin. I didn't even know that. <laughs> uh, I, I thought it was truly believable until I, I learned more. I thought it was great. Um, and, and I don't think there were, I mean, there were a couple of those sequences like with the head turns, but there was nothing in the, um, you know, all the way up to the, in the, in the final sequence, um, all the way up to the very end, like as they're falling apart together and they have their, it's a much more sort of intimate third act as they're kind of locked in their own apartment. and. Um, uh, all the way up to the final sequence, I did not, I, I, I was not shaken from my belief that these were Elliot and Bev. Yeah. Well, and I think that all falls on Jeremy Irons' shoulders. Yeah. He is so flawless throughout this film. It's just, it's shocking how, how brilliant he is here. I, it just, it blows my mind that this, he has such like subtle differences between these two characters that mm -hmm. I completely buy into the fact that there are two characters here and two physical beings on screen together. It's amazing how well he did in putting, pulling this performance off. And same thing with, um, Genevieve Bujold, uh, as, as Claire. I mean, she was also, 
uh, I, I think carried a heavy load uh, in in this movie, particularly in the beginning. But uh, to to be sort of the intermediary intermediary between these two emotionally, uh, and and to sort of be a vessel for their kind of uh, interpersonal poison, uh, I, I think is interesting. She's also, you know, she, I met, I use the word catalyst. That's one that just keeps coming back to me, not just in the way their, her, their relationship fell apart, but, but also in the way her casual drug use created drug abusers in these guys. And, um, I, I thought that was an interesting little bit of virality that comes as a result of her fame and explorations in a whole different universe than theirs. And that's another interesting aspect to identity and how drugs can kind of become a part of your identity and or they can give you the identity you think you need. And in this particular case, I mean, here he is, he even acknowledges in the beginning because she asks him, she's like, I hear a lot of doctors have have, uh, you know, addiction problems. He's like, yeah, that's true. And then he proceeds to jump right into it with her and it becomes a part of his identity. And that's the interesting thing as the film progresses. The other brother, you know, he feels like he needs to kind of start doing it so that he can get on, get in sync with his brother to help him get off of it. And it's like the mentality that wraps around that is just mind boggling and horrifying because addiction can be such a scary thing. Well, and. Uh, just a terror in their apartment. My goodness, they destroy that place. Uh, can we can we talk a little bit about uh, why this isn't a five star movie for you? <laughs> why uh, Why are you assuming that? Uh, because I, I just I just feel like it isn't. I just feel like it isn't because it's not for me either. It it is yeah, not a five not, star movie it, for me. It isn't. It's just weird that you assumed that. I'm like, I, well, I, I don't want to know what it is. I don't know what I do. Maybe it's four and three quarter stars. I don't want to know anything about. It. I just want to know why it's not five. It could just be the the topic. It's it because of you know the nature of the film. You're that scared it is. of you're scared of talking about women's health. Is that okay? <laughs> I just want to get that down. It's you no, know, it's it's a but it's a it's a harder film to watch. It's it, there's a lot of kind of uh, complex issues that it's dealing with, and you know I I I also feel like Cronenberg is a really interesting director who makes really interesting films that don't leave your head very quickly. But also, he's a filmmaker who's just he's not um, on the top of my list of directors. I think he's a really interesting director doing a lot of really interesting things with interesting stories, but they they're just not always my kind of story. This is a film I really do enjoy, but it's also I mean, it's not something that I'm going to put on regularly. You know, it's not one of my favorites. So I, I think it's just it's a you know, it's a kind of a difficult story that I'm like, I, I really like. But it's just not a favorite. So I think that's why I still would say it's not not quite a five star for me. It's not quite a five star for me, but not, I think uh, I think I'm OK with all of that stuff that you just said. For me, it's a much more sort of practical pacing issue that I feel like the film slows down in a way that I lose I lose the thread and I lose interest a little bit in that sort of second act muddly part. Right. Where we're starting to feel like. Bev is falling apart and she's gone. And I think she's, you know, Claire's, she takes off to film for 10 weeks to film a thing. And, and, uh, she triggers Bev's insecurities when he calls and, and thinks she's having an affair. And it's just, it, it's messy. And 
slow. It sort of bogs down in its own insecurities in the second act, and I feel like it takes a bit to ramp back up. So I lose it a bit, and I, it, it's uh, it, it's not for the lack of of uh, Jeremy Irons and his portrayal here. It's I just think it's not as tight as the first and third acts it's i i'm trying to put my finger on is it a script issue is it the mechanics of of handing off their emotional baggage to one another that goes on significantly in this in this part of the film or or what but until they try to get back in sync i kind of lose it Uh, and and i it slows down I, I I mean, and I think there's definitely something to that, and maybe that's uh, one of the elements for me as well. I it does like you know just revisiting it now and then just you know listening to some of the uh, the commentary tracks. I kind of I, I hit a point midway through where I feel like oh I'm close to the end because you know he's kind of already taking that turn. Um, and then I look at the time. I'm like, oh no, I'm actually only halfway through. <laughs> but but yeah, you start feeling like you're getting close to wrapping things up. But nope, there's still the the whole rest of the second act to kind of uh, wade through. So yeah, I, mean, I think that you probably have a point with that. Yeah, and I wonder too. I mean, it's it is both the curse uh, and blessing of Cronenberg's. Uh, breadth of his interests as a filmmaker that uh, but I wonder if this film was hurt at all that it wasn't more graphic uh, and that he may have uh, that that even my own perception of going into the film that I you know uh, watching it even this time my memory of it was much more graphic than it was this is not a horror movie <laughs> and give it everything that we've talked about and even the fly before it like I just have a sense of this is going to be so gross and it wasn't at, at all it's much more cerebral horror and I wonder if that hurt my experience of it that my expectations were something different this is really kind of the stepping stone for me of where Cronenberg is, uh, or at least was, in kind of the last portion of his working career when he was making Eastern Promises and History mm-hmm. of Violence and things like that that are much more psychological. Because I think right. you would say there's not a lot of body horror in those particular films. And uh, it's it, those are very much about the, the the mental body horror, I guess, in some of the characters and stuff. And I, I think that... Uh, I mean, it's, it's it's an interesting question, though, because I do feel like at this particular point in Cronenberg's career, when he was just on the heels of what we have been talking about with all of his early body horror films, and then the two that we have previously talked about with The Dead Zone and The Fly, kind of big Hollywood movies, to make this shift that all of a sudden is not as much a psychological horror. I mean, I can't speak to how it affected you on going into it in this particular case, but I mean, I think there may be something to that as far as what he delivered to the studio and what they put in theaters as far as, you know, how it did at the box office. We also have another opportunity of him to do for him to do something weird with children. Exactly. We start this film with the young version of these twins and Cronenberg uh, you know, it's kind of funny. He seems to have this thing about, uh, you know, uh, putting kids in situations where most filmmakers are not comfortable with having kids do things like The Brood, where he has these young children killing a teacher in front of uh, a kindergarten class. It's pretty shocking. In this particular case, it's not quite so violent, but it is 
the two young versions of the twins um, talking about sex and the need for sex and this whole logic about fish, which is an interesting way to open the film, leading into talking to this young girl about sex. And it's not a conversation I think many filmmakers uh, are going to want to include um, with children as the ones who are having the conversation. Well, you're really delicate in, in your <laughs> portrayal of what happens. I mean, they ask her if they, she wants to have sex and she with them. And it's very cold and calculating and you can tell experimental for them. And she launches back with a profanity laden retort that, uh, you know, uh, that that is absolutely out of context, certainly for the rest of the movie, until actually we get to uh, the restaurant scene where Bujol gets a chance to to toss some wine in some face and and uh, and and have a little bit of a response. These guys are not smooth operators with women for everything that they do. And and it's uh, in their professional career. They still have no idea how to talk to women. Uh, and and I kind of love that 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 those two dots get to be sort of connected uh, in this film, like their their youth, and they've just they absolutely destroy their relationship with this girl and have no idea what just happened, and then they go you know thirty years later and they do the same thing. Uh, it's uh, kind of magical. <laughs> yeah, it's an interesting way to kind of kick things off for sure. Yeah, right. Uh, you want to talk a little bit about getting it made? Are we done with the rest of it? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think it's actually really interesting. I don't think I realized. Uh, I knew that this was based on uh, other material. I didn't realize that that other material really kind of was looking loosely based on the lives of uh, real uh, twins, Stuart and uh, Cyril Marcus, who were actual gynecologist twins who uh kind of uh yeah they uh there's an element of their lives i think that were pulled for uh this particular story i think if you listen to cronenberg talking about it it's it's pretty loose there's not a lot there but the idea was this whole idea of these identical twins and this nature of kind of their their connection with each other and the drug use, that was also something that was a problem in uh, in the Marcus twins that um, that these two are kind of loosely based on. One of the, the Marcus twins did die of a barbiturate overdose, and the other one um, died very shortly afterward um, in the same space as his brother, um, not necessarily from a drug overdose, but, you know, it's that whole sense of being kind of one person in two bodies just kind of ended up dying. So it's an interesting way to kind of um, kind of pull that and use it to tell this story. For, for me, it was fascinating that you just how loosely this was based on these two guys. Like it really is. Look, there are two twins who were gynecologists. Wow, where can we go from there? It's like a <laughs> right. college creative writing exercise, right? Like um I, it it is very loose and uh boy, did he take it in some fascinating directions. Um you, we we do need to talk briefly about I think the the uh, actual tools. Did we did we talk enough about the tools? I don't know if we have talked about them enough. Um we're first introduced Can you to ever them talk the, about the, the tools enough? <laughs> <laughs> 
we get to start seeing them in the credits, which are just beautiful, kind of designed almost like wood cuttings of these kind of horrifying tools. And then, yeah, we just see some pretty shocking things. And uh, Cronenberg, I guess he had actually designed some of these as sculptures when he was on a retreat in in France and uh, then kind of use them as kind of the foundation to kind of create these these horrifying tools that are just shocking and the, although it's funny because in the film I'm like all they're ever using is the weird hook one they never use any of those other ones but then I'm like maybe I would prefer that I'm not sure I want to see them using yeah. some of those other ones there's one with like a quarter of a spine hanging off of it what do you do with that there's the one With that looks the, almost like a face hugger. Yeah, it was a face hugger. Oh, it's not great. Yeah. Some pretty uh, awful where, tools. Where are the tools now, do you think? That's a good question. I don't know. Who has I wouldn't be surprised if Cronenberg uh, has, has some of them laying about <laughs> his place. Apparently, he used quite a bit of the furniture from the Mantle's apartment in his own place. So wow. I wouldn't be surprised if the... <laughs> the tools, the tools there as well. are above the mantle. Well, this was a tough one. I'm going to say not a tough one, but everything I've, I've heard there, every time I hear someone involved in the scenario talk about getting the Mantle Twins cast, the number of people who tried out for it uh, or who were approached to, do, to play the part goes up. Uh, at first, it was you know there were two to three. Uh, eventually, it worked up to in in, in uh, the last interview I watched again. This was the Studio Q interview. There were thirty. Thirty actors were approached and turned down this role before Jeremy Irons uh, took it on. Did you, did you find out anything more specific than that? No, but I I think that that sounds probably about right. I mean, it's a complex role, and and Cronenberg said. A lot of them would start reading the script, and within the first 10 pages or so, they were doing a gynecological procedure with a patient. Mm -hmm. And that right there was where most of them stopped and said, oh, you know what, I don't want to do this. And a lot of them would ask, can, can, we, can, there, can it be a different profession? Can it be lawyers? Something like that. And uh, yeah, so it just seemed to be the profession that really kind of turned a lot of people off. That was De Niro, I think, who wanted it to be a lawyer. Robert De Niro yeah. said, I'll do it if it's an attorney. Yeah. Well, it's, it's, it's one of those things. I mean, even Jeremy Irons said a lot of people who he talked to in his, you know, uh, kind of professional, um, you know, the, the professional people on his team, I guess you could say agents and managers and all that sort of thing. A lot of them were like, you shouldn't do this. This is the sort of job that can, can hurt your career. And that's probably what a lot of people had their agents and managers saying when they saw it was a horror David Cronenberg film about twin gynecologists. You know, it's just like, ooh. Although I did hear he said William Hurt, actually, his concern was the whole twinning thing. He says, you know, he was he was concerned about actually trying to pull off a performance of playing two people he's like i have a hard enough time just you know getting one performance in yeah so that's uh, less about the gynecology more about the uh the twinning and he would eventually circle around and come back to work on a cronenberg film later right uh bully for him for not uh chickening out because of the subject matter and i think yeah. you know that is the calculus that jeremy irons um was sort of weighing as he uh as he 
takes the role, right? Uh, and and I think you're probably right against advice of a lot of people, you know, public pundits and and private team members. But when you're able to, when you're confident enough in your own craft to be able to pull off a, a part like this, doesn't matter what the movie is. I think his his portrayal here transcended the even the film, and um, and I, I think it changed the course of his career uh, in in a positive way. Yeah, it's funny because, you know, he said he really likes movies that um, that are about the head and involving like, you know, dramatic stories of characters, internal struggles. Mm-hmm. And he says he's really not into effects movies. He really didn't want to, you know, do the scene, the effects scene with the kind of the conjoined, um, you know, thing connecting the two versions of him. But, he, you know, Cronenberg is like, well, it's a Cronenberg movie. I need to put it in there. Otherwise, I have to, you know, have, you know, 10 pages just of dialogue explaining what I want I can get across in that one scene. And Jeremy Irons is like, yeah, it's fine. I know you have to do it. That's fine. I just don't like effects movies. But then I'm like, well, eventually he would do Dungeons and Dragons and Aragon. And yeah, I feel right. like he kind of fell off that train. But yes, largely, I think this put him in a strong direction for a while. Yeah, uh, I think so too. Um, such such an interesting selection of of films that came after this, uh, after just really a lot of TV movies, a lot of TV. He did have the mission immediately before this. Um, That's that, one of my favorites of of note, which is yeah, it's it's one of my favorites too. But it didn't become one of my favorites, I think, until after Dead Ringers. I, I don't even think I saw the mission in the theater. I wouldn't have seen either of these, in the, either of them in the theater. Uh, you know, it does get us back to some just really risk-taking performances. And Butterfly, you know, I mean, he comes back around. We do have Cronenberg's cronies. He's got some people that he's been working with before and some new people. Uh, where would you like to start there? Well, and I guess I should jump back to the cast just to mention that Stephen Lack, who we last saw in Scanners, is back as the uh, as the one designing the tools in as the art pieces in this particular film. <laughs> he was he was great, very brief, but really fun to yeah. see him in here. Definitely fun. That would be a great topic for a show, <laughs> right? Uh, which he then steals. That's great. Yeah. Um, yeah, and then we have a lot of the the kind of the the usual. Uh, Peter Szyzycki, uh started working with Cronenberg here because Mark Irwin, who had been with him since Fast Company, um, he was on with him through the Fly, and then he was on the Blob afterward, the Fly, and couldn't get off of it to jump onto Dead Ringers. So that's when Cronenberg started working with Peter Szyzycki, and what do you know? He's been working with Peter since then, all the way through his most recent film. And uh, we've got some lovely and uh, attentive production design and um, obviously effects design. You want to talk about Carol Spire? Carol Spear, yes. Another one. Spear, Spire, really? (laughs) That's how she likes you to say it. All right. Um, she, I, you know, she had been another one of Cronenberg's regulars. Um, what I think was great is that she talked about how she really, um, they worked up with a palette of the colors of bruises throughout the film, notably for things related to the mantle twins. Um, also keeping it very sterile, um, except for Claire's place, which was a little more earthy and not so sterile. I think that uh, is really, uh, it, it's nice. It works really well in context of who these brothers are. And uh, we have, speaking of siblings, Denise Cronenberg uh, working on costumes. Right. Yeah, this is her fourth film with her brother. Uh, She started with him on the fly in a minor capacity and uh, is, uh, I think, much uh, 
no, before this video drum, she started with him in a minor capacity. And by the fly, she was actually working on a costume design. And this film, I, you know, the standout for me is always those red surgical gowns that make them look like, you know, this is their church. <laughs> and these, they are the bishops. And uh, what a fantastically over the top way to uh, define that. I love it. Oh, God, it's just it. it is haunting such beautiful imagery comes out of those choices you know and then and, and it's it, it connects so perfectly to you know like the handmaid's tale right this is sort of a progenitor film to to that story and it, and, and weirdly i always think of uh which is a very different look but bram stoker's dracula yeah and and like the red armor that he had that looked almost like you know muscles and sinew yeah that uh, it, i don't know why it just it, it's i think it's just the full red that 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 makes me think of that i feel like howard shore has come into his own in this film in a uh, with with the score in this film for cronenberg scores uh in in probably its most mature level of connection between themes and story i it was am transfixed by this one it's beautiful. And I love the way that the music itself kind of has this these twin elements. Like, you know, it's like da da it's always repeating itself. Da 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 da. And so there's always those two notes, like the little twins, except at the end where it's like da da it like separates them. I don't know. I just I, I find it such beautifully kind of uh dramatic, haunting, tragic, uh also romantic music it's like it's such beautiful music in this film and it works well for this film because it again it doesn't it doesn't feel like it needs to make it a horror and i think howard shore works well with kind of the psychology that cronenberg is doing to kind of find the right tone for the music well and i think that's what i mean right that that's the, just the elements of contrast that we have between what we're seeing on on screen and what we're hearing and then how how he moves from contrast to complement from scene to scene and i think the third yeah. act is an incredible example of that like where we get in, into the final sort of resolution of the film right um, and and how the music leads us out i just i'm it's it's very moving it really is uh and, and again speaking of sound we haven't had this name pop up in our credits in some time would you like to do the uh, good old andy nelson re-recording andy mixer. nelson oh <laughs> Andy Nelson. Yeah, it's always great to see him pop up. Yeah, we haven't seen him. Show it's been up in a it's while been a long time, have we? Yeah, uh, yeah. It, it has been a long time, but it was fun to see his name on that list since he's done ten thousand movies. He's done like you know what he's busy on right now. What? The latest Star Wars movie. <laughs> <laughs> People will have to go back and listen to our uh, speakeasy where we talk yes. to him about one of his favorite movies. I'll find a way to get the link in the show notes. I'll figure out how the internet works. <laughs> totally off topic, but this is his 2019. Alita Battle Angel, Stuber, A Dog's Journey, Jojo Rabbit, Lucy in the Sky, Terminator Dark Fate, Star Wars The Rise of Skywalker. It, it shows that everybody has room to grow. <laughs> what a year, oh, Andy man. Nelson. What a year. Holy cow, indeed. Uh, you want to talk about award season? 
this is kind of hitting that point where Cronenberg, like people recognize a film because it's not just necessarily a genre film, even though the first one that we'll talk about is the genre awards, the Saturn Awards over at the Academy of Science Fiction, Fantasy and Horror Films. It had five nominations there. Uh, lost all of them. Uh, best horror film. This is an odd one. It lost to Beetlejuice, which I have a hard time defining as horror. Mm-hmm. But I guess if those are the three categories, sci-fi, fantasy, or horror, I guess it'll go to horror. It just seems like such a Tim Burton comedy to me. But who am I to say? Rank amateur, Andy. I guess so. This was an interesting one. Another one. Uh, best actor. Jeremy Irons was nominated. Lost to Tom Hanks for Big. Now, of course, I'm a Tom Hanks fan, so I always love it seeing him get more awards. And I guess in context of uh, fantasy, sure, you know, he's uh, it, it ends up working. But I have I have such a hard time imagining anybody beating Jeremy Irons because he's so yeah. good. I think this is just, you know, big is a very uh, crowd uh, pleasing film. And so uh, with a crowd pleasing performance at the heart of it. So I can see why Tom Hanks would have won. Yeah. Best writing, also lost to Big. Uh, great script there. Best music, lost to Hellbound, Hellraiser 2. Christopher Young did write a pretty fantastic score for that, so I'm kind of not surprised. But again, I do awfully like this Howard Shore score. And the best costumes, lost to Willow, which was uh, an interesting one. And I, then can, over I the, mean, I can see that. I can see that one, yeah. At the Genie Awards, uh, it had 10 wins and two other nominations. This is, of course, Canada's Academy Awards. Uh, it won for Best Motion Picture, Best Leading Actor, Jeremy Irons, Best Direction, Best Adapted Screenplay, Best Cinematography, Best Art Direction, Production Design, Best Editing, Best Score, Best Sound Editing, Best Overall Sound, including Andy Nelson, and then uh, Genevieve Genevieve or something. I mm-hmm. listened to them say it a million times, and now I can't say it. Genevieve, I think. Genevieve Bujold was nominated for Best Leading Actress, but lost to Jackie Burroughs for A Winter Tan. And a Best Costume Design lost to Le Porte Tournament. <laughs> I never took French, so <laughs> Le, Le Porte Tournament. I don't know. Anyway. Tournant. Tournant. Yeah. Uh, yes, the revolving doors. Let me just say it that way. Anyway, uh, the Oscars, no nominations at the Oscars, but Jeremy Irons did win Best Actor for Reversal of Fortune. And in his acceptance speech, he did thank David Cronenberg. And he thinks that the reason that he won for Reversal of Fortune is because people were voting for him because of his performance in this film. Well, I mean, that's what he thinks. But what really matters is what do you think? <laughs> I think it's one of those things. I think, you know, people acknowledge, you know, he had a great year. It's like those award yeah. ceremonies where he won for this film and this film. Yeah, right. You know? And yeah. this one, he literally won for both films at the same time. Yeah. <laughs> right. Uh, how to do at the box office. Well, after his two big Hollywood successes, Cronenberg got a nice-sized budget of $13 million, or $28 million in today's dollars, nearly double what Videodrome had cost. Dead Ringers was released September 23, 1988, opposite Gorillas in the Mist, Kansas, Patty Hearst, Spellbinder, and Sweetheart's Dance. And of those films, this one had the biggest release, opening on over a 1,000 screens. No surprise, this one opened in the number one spot for its opening weekend, but in week two, had already dropped to the number four spot. By week three, it was in 14th place, and the following week, its theatrical release ended. 
Clearly, this was a film that wasn't pulling in a mass audience. The film only earned $9.1 million at the box office, or $19.7 million in today's dollars, landing it with an adjusted loss per finished minute of $72.6,000. Cronenberg's career after this would be filled with more box office failures than successes, and perhaps that is why he has been semi-retired since his last film, Maps to the Stars, in 2014. I don't know what this says about our future Cronenberg series, but there are definitely some Cronenbergs that I want to come back to. Yeah, I would love to come back and circle around to talk more of his films. I think it's an interesting, it, this, this was an interesting director. And for me, it, it, the experience was sort of double. And, and it was, let me go ahead and get over my uh, horror challenges. And I did that. I'm going to call that done uh, a, a couple movies in. Uh, that's I'm fine. It's good. Uh, he is an interesting guy to watch come out of this sort of obscurity uh, and use the skills that he developed on these on these horror movies to tell stories that are to tell this story in particular, the story um, in, in a way that I think connects emotionally uh, in, in a distinctly Cronenberg style to the audience, right? This is not something that, that I mean, I, it would be interesting to watch other directors in, uh, you know, take on, on Dead Ringers. I think his uh, aesthetic, his like visual aesthetic is, is one that is wholly unique to, to Cronenberg. And um, I, 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 even in this movie, it's hard for me not to see specifically his hand on these movies, maybe more than any director that we've talked about, besides maybe Spielberg, where I, I watch a movie and it feels so hand to glove, their stone, their tone and style, their eye, um, that, that I feel like I could pick him out of a lineup. Well, I think it's there's a reason that he is in that small pool of directors who have basically created their own adjective, you know, Spielbergian, Kubrickian, Tarantino-esque. Is that what we say? Tarantinian? He doesn't like that? Tarantinian? It's Tarantinti. It's a little Tarantinti. I like that one. And Cronenbergian, you know, I don't think we say Scorsesean, but we probably could. No, we just call it cinema. Or we just call it <laughs> well played, <laughs> well played. <laughs> but yes, he 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 has created a definite style. And the thing that that struck me as I was watching a lot of these films of his, whether I'd seen them or not, is how memorable they are. Well, I should say, especially the ones that I had seen before, there were iconic images that 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 they had that it's like that had never left my head from when I first saw the films. I think that is something that Cronenberg can do incredibly well, where he can create moments that whether you kind of like the film or not, they stick with you because it kind of hits you in this core place that that uh, does something. And, and I think that's a challenge for filmmakers to do is to kind of do that with their art where they, they are creating something that sticks. And uh, I think that having seen so many more of his films now, I could say 
effectively, he has managed to do that in all of them. I mean, I am not going to be forgetting the armpit, uh, you know, attack. <laughs> Probuscus. <laughs> I am not, you know, the, 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 you know, the, the slug being transferred from face to face. There are a lot of images, uh, even the oil on the breasts probably is yeah. going to stick with me. Like there's a lot of things that he has done in his films that I think, uh, works really well in context of the way that he is shaping the psychology of the stories he's telling. Yeah, I I, I agree with you. Even though his films, like as we gear up to rank them, don't, um, you know, they may not rank as five-star movies for, for either of us, that what you're talking about, this whole uh, idea of a filmmaker being able to cement an emotional memory for me, uh, as a viewer, is an incredibly powerful um, uh, tool. It's an incredibly powerful skill. And um, I, I think he certainly has it. Um, and I'm I'm very interested to see some films of his later that I haven't seen because I, my expectations were uh, off. So I skipped them. Uh, but I'm I'm now I'm super interested in coming back to them to see just how well he does. I'm right there with you. It's a great baseline. It's an interesting series to have done where this is kind of the end of it because I feel yeah. like we've hit kind of a, a shift in how he's going to move forward, and so it'll be interesting to come back and revisit with some other films later. Let's rank it. Let's do it. Head over flickchart.com slash the next reel. You'll see all of the movies we've talked about on this very show. Uh, if you swipe over in your show notes, you tap. The word flick chart, you tap it, it should take you straight to this movie in the flick chart database where you can add it to your own list and see how it stacks up to ours. First up, Dead Ringers or Robin Hood, Ridley Scott's version. Uh, Dead, Dead Ringers. Ringers, yeah. Dead Ringers or The Adventures of Baron Munchausen. Dead Ringers. Dead Ringers. Dead Ringers or Creed. Creed. Gotta go with Creed, yeah. Dead Ringers or L.A. Confidential? L.A. Confidential. L.A. Confidential. Dead Ringers or The Sting? We're going with The Sting. Yeah, The Sting. Dead Ringers or Shaun of the Dead? Uh, Shaun, Shaun of the, the Dead. Dead. Yeah. Dead Ringers or Time Crimes? Ooh. I'm do Time Crimes. Time Crimes. Dead Ringers or Fargo? Fargo. Fargo. Problem is this. This is totally reminding me how much re-ranking I have to do on my own list. <laughs> Dead Ringers or Rocky Balboa? Rocky Balboa. I I'll say Rocky Balboa. I'm that one. That was the first one I was like on the fence. Yeah, for a little bit. But uh, well, that lands Dead Ringers at 107 on our chart. 107 out of 425. That's pretty good. Which is uh, yeah, it did pretty pretty well for itself. How to do on your chart? My own chart, it landed at 1,005 out of 4,221, which is about a 70%, 75%. That's it. It's practically, isn't it? But what, what was it for the TNR chart? 70%? Uh, 107 is 75%, yeah. I'll be darned. 107 out of 425, yeah. Mine came in at 204 out of 1414. That's an 86%. Hmm. I know, right? Who who would have ever expected? It should be, if I go by the algorithm uh, for letterbox.com slash the next reel, it should be a four and a half star out of five. Uh, and I am settling in at four stars. And that might be just habit because that's where it has been since the first time I ranked it at four stars. That's just, 
felt right with the act two kind of slowdown um, it, that that I think infected uh, a kind of a weighty part of the movie that feels like a comfortable place to acknowledge some incredible work by Jean-Vivre uh, Bujold and uh, Jeremy Irons and Cronenberg. They get all the other stars. Yeah, that's, I think, uh, that's where I am. Four stars and a heart. Yeah. I think that's probably where the film has been for me since I saw it. And so I feel like it's uh, it's a good spot right there. Yeah, definitely in the right place. This was great. Now um, we're really changing gears. <laughs> we really, truly are. <laughs> what is our next <laughs> series, Andy? We are going to be looking at early Steve Martin. The horror horror movies of Steve Martin. (laughs) Body Body horror. horror. Yeah. No, we're going to be looking at early Steve Martin. We'll be looking at The Jerk, Pennies from Heaven, Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid, The Man with Two Brains, The Lonely Guy, and we'll be ending with All of Me. I'm looking forward to this series. I'm also nervous about it. This is the first series that we've done in a long time where I've actually seen every movie, but it's been long enough that I only have those, some of those memories of the best parts I hope there's more than just the best parts that I like about these movies again well I will be walking in having only seen uh, three of the six and like you it's been a very long time since I've seen those three except for one which I actually watched for the first time relatively recently so oh dear okay It'll be an interesting series. I'm looking forward to kind of seeing what uh, Steve Martin did, especially early in his career, that kind of really made him into a star and kind of got him his whole career. Right. I mean, this is a guy who has had so many chapters in his career uh, and and has has seemed to have navigated them so very well. The last time I saw him, he was on stage at Chautauqua with Edie Brickell playing the banjo live. What am I doing watching Steve Martin do that? Like there was no King Tut. There was no, like <laughs> I, how has he managed to navigate his incredible career? Uh, so I'm really looking forward to seeing where things began. That will uh, kick us off and it'll take us through uh, right, really kind of right through the beginning of 2020. And then we'll kind of kick off our 2020 season uh, season when all of this is over. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. Amazon giveth, Andy. As Amazon always doeth. Amazon uh, sort of did. Some people showed up. They had opinions. These little gems, yeah. Uh Uh-huh. They did. A little diamond in the rough. Uh, And uh, would you like to to go first? Sure. I've got a one star by LCC, who says, downright weird. I saw dead ringers in the movies. The theater was filled with mostly couples. When it was over, as we walked out, Laughter began to spread as we all recognized that we as couples were having the same conversation. Whose stupid idea was it to pay money to see this movie? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's a great question. (laughs) And I think Sebring 04 actually uh, has has an answer. It's it's awful is is the word for this movie. 
It's totally unreal and nonsense. Thankfully, the internet stepped in with a correction. <laughs> G. Willie came in just seven months ago and said, that's funny. It's based on the demise of the Marcus twins who were identical, became affluent gynecologists, and lived in New York City, just like the movie. Furthermore, they became pill addicts and committed suicide. Although Cronenberg puts his unique twist on the story, taking it grotesquely over the top, there wasn't much that could be unreal and nonsense. However, the crafting of this bizarre surgical tool is a prime example of Cronenberg's genius and assumingly is meant to be surreal and shocking, stranger than fiction. Who the hell watches a Cronenberg film expecting nonfiction anyway? It makes no sense. Total nonsense and unreal that you said such a thing. Wow. Hmm, I know. Thorough. The very thorough. That was, a, that was what we call an internet undressing. <laughs> they were I feel thoroughly like it was, undressed. I feel like it was one of the Mantle Twins. It was so <gasps> meticulous and uh, clinical. Oh, it was Elliot. Because <laughs> that's what Elliot. Elliot would be doing. Yeah. That is such an Elliot move. If Elliot had been around during the internet, he would have been huge on Reddit, man. Yeah. Uh, and, and Amazon comments. <laughs> and Amazon comments. But Bev, he's all TikTok. <laughs> Thanks, Amazon. <laughs> I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms. But in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM. And it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content. And we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable, too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash transistor. Start growing your podcast today. <laughs>